0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 110 My Substitute. Well, last week, I published uh, the first half of my recent interview with my friend, Dr. Steve Jeffrey, on the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And since uh, today's episode is going to contain part two, I'm going to skip over uh, playing a promo from my promo rotation. We'll save that for next episode. Uh, but let me catch you up with where we left off. I, I introduced my friend, uh, Dr. Jeffrey, and we talked about the background of his recent un- uh, appearance on Unbelievable with, Re- with Justin Brierley, where he discussed and defended this view uh, I asked him to define uh, penal substitutionary atonement as well as the Christus Victor view of the atonement, and I asked him if it was an either and kind of a uh, either or kind of a situation or a both and kind of situation. And he described the atonement like a uh, brilliant diamond that you you see different aspects to it when you look at it from different angles. Uh, and we believe that penal substitution and Christus Victor are not mutually exclusive. Now I asked him to give us a brief positive biblical case for penal substitutionary atonement. We talked about uh, whether or not any of the early church fathers uh, taught something akin to this view. And I asked him what sort of impact the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement can have on uh, the life of somebody who believes in it. And it was at that time that we began to switch gears and I started playing the devil's advocate, raising a number of objections uh, to penal substitution. We started with whether or not penal substitution amounts to little more than cosmic child abuse uh, and it was at that point that we left off. So let's pick right back up. Uh, we'll pick the conversation right back up, discussing more objections to penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, enjoy. He became my
1: substitute. It should have been me on the cross. But he became my substitute. My soul would have been lost. Without my substitute,
0: now I'll ever praise my substitute. But you know, your your answer kind of goes to something similar that that Greg uh, Boyd had objected to, or an objection that he had given during the, his clip and in, in the show, which is he sort of characterized. He said that PSA sort of characterizes the father as a sort of rageaholic who needs to vent his wrath on on anybody, and, and he doesn't really care who. But as you point out, mm, this was yeah. um, this was Jesus willingly going to the cross. One of the things that really stands out to me is when Jesus said that there's no greater act of love than to give one's life for one's friends, and I don't see how anybody could. Characterize that as anything like, you know, God Mm. venting his wrath on anybody, doesn't matter who, or or cosmic child abuse. I just don't, I I can't conceive of where that's coming from, you know? I I mean, I'm I'm gonna, you were a little bit more gracious than I think I would be. I think that when things like cosmic child abuse (laughs) and um, rageaholic are thrown around, I don't think it's just, uh, uh, misunderstanding. I think there are times when it's used uh, intentionally to set up a sort of straw man uh, that's easily knocked down. And and I personally don't respect when people do that. But, you know, our listeners know that you're being a little bit more gracious in that regard than I'm willing to be. But, you know, Molyneux did pick up on this cosmic child abuse language uh, a little bit to say that it's, he said he didn't, he wouldn't call it cosmic child abuse but he did say that it's cosmic injustice and and one of the things that he kept bringing up and and greg mentioned as well during his clip was that they don't see how it, it could even be just that another person could pay the penalty for uh for the guilt that somebody else has so let's let's talk about that a little bit how how could it be that it would be just for someone else to pay the punishment that i deserve can guilt really be transferred like that
1: yeah well this is uh, is a, a good question because um it reveals a shortcoming in the uh, in the way that penal substitutionary atonement is sometimes articulated. Sometimes people talk about um, penal substitutionary atonement as if um, there's some guy somewhere who gets the rap for something he didn't do, um, and everyone says, well, hold on, that's not fair. <laughs> you know, um, if my brother um, lands in court... Um, and ends up with a three-month jail sentence for doing something he shouldn't have done. And I say, well, hey, you know what, I will voluntarily go to prison in this place. Everyone's going to say, no, that's not allowed. He's got to go. He's the guilty one. And one of the guys who emailed me after the premiere show, um, James, said um, that this is, I I guess this is something that was in his mind, because this issue of union with Christ, our being one with Christ, uh helped him to think through that, and maybe it will help some of your listeners too. Let me just talk about this for a second. The Bible says that Jesus was not, and is not, an unrelated third party. He's not just like some other guy going into the courtroom to pay your fine for you, or some other guy going to prison for you. The Bible says that there is a relationship between Jesus Christ and the people for whom he died, such that he is rightly to be considered one with them. You just look through uh, Paul's letters and see the number of times he talks about our being in Christ or Christ being in us. This is intended to express a, a closeness of relationship which goes beyond anything else we can imagine. It means that Jesus doesn't stand at a distance but comes so close to us that actually it is right, it is just, For our debt, our burden, our sins to be taken from our shoulders by him. Though it's hard to understand, there are biblical analogies which help us to make sense of it. Uh, And once you've heard one or two of the analogies, it it makes a bit more sense. and Actually, it it ceases to become so troublesome, I think. Mm. Uh, One that Martin Luther drew attention to is the analogy of marriage between a husband and a wife. Um, Now, this is very familiar. You read Ephesians 5 or something, or some of the Old Testament prophets, um, depict the people of God as a bride, um, and the uh, the book of Revelation, chapters 21-22, the people of God are a bride, and Christ is the husband. And when I married my wife, uh, she received all my debts, and I received all her money, and nobody complained. Now, why is that? Well, (laughs) It's because well, I said anything complain. Um, it, the reason is that our relationship had come so close that it was right that we share everything. And Martin Luther uses this biblical analogy to expand on this point and says that this is, this is the reason why Jesus is uniquely qualified to stand in the place of his people. It's because he's that close to them. He's in us. And we are in him. So when it comes to, I mean, you mentioned uh, guilt being transferred, I don't really think we should think about transfer in that kind of ec- extrinsic way, as if guilt is a, you could put the guilt in a box and <laughs> ship it off somewhere. Mm. No, 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 it's not that. It's that somebody else comes sufficiently close to us that it's right that he stand in our place. Other biblical imagery um, uh, helps, again, to... Um, flesh out the same picture. This incidentally is what I mean by letting the Bible's way of saying things uh, shape how we put together the biblical material. Um, Christ talks about... Christ is the head and we are the body. Just think about that for a minute. How often do we just skate over that? Uh, Oh, it's just an illustration, like we're we're, (laughs) we're joined to Christ. No, 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 think about it for a second. The head and the body are so closely connected that when the hand is struck the head feels the pain Mm. and if that's mysterious well yeah it is isn't it Um, there's something about our relationship to Christ which makes it different from any other relationship and it's that relatedness that closeness being in Christ that warrants him standing as our substitute which is why no other man could it's why nobody else can go to hell for us I, I can't go to hell for my wife I'm not close enough to her I don't need to, because she's in Christ.
0: Yeah, you know, and I do want to. I do want to add to this that the idea of, um, I mean, putting aside whether or not it's just for one person to bear the punishment for another person's guilt, uh, the question of one person being sharing the guilt of another is not um, uh, foreign in Scripture. I mean, uh, in Paul in, in Romans four or five, I believe it is, argues that. Um, there was no between Adam and Moses there was no right. guilt because there was no law and yet people between Adam and Moses died and he seems to use that as evidence that all of yes. Adam's descendants are guilty of the sin that Adam uh, w- that Adam committed yes, and, yeah and, that's and, right. and, 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 and so in first Corinthians Paul says that just as in Adam all died die. so yes. in Christ all live and so it seems to me that the, the concept of, uh, of of sharing or of being held accountable for somebody else's guilt is not foreign in Scripture, and, and so it seems to me perfectly reasonable that, following yeah. in line with this this idea of headship, federal headship, that that Christ could be that the that the um, uh, that, that the penalty paid by Christ could likewise mm-hmm. be yeah. credited to my account. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, so,
1: what, and what that helps to understand is that there's um, Christ standing as our substitute. Is the is the pinnacle of a, a larger theological structure in Scripture. Uh, Christ is the only one who could go to hell for us. But let, let me put that differently, because we're going to have a conversation about hell, won't we? Christ, yeah, Christ is the only one who could suffer the the punishment that we that we deserve to suffer everlastingly. Um, but the Bible also teaches us to think about these other corporate structures in um, scripture and the most obvious one is that between all humanity in, in Adam right. um, and uh, you you see similar things actually in um, relationship between parents and their children and kings and their people mm. um, there's a kind of solidarity such that um, God counts the, the wickedness or the godliness of the one in some way such that it impacts the experience of the others. That's not done in relation to their eternal salvation, except in or out of Christ. Um, It's striking to me that... uh, I believe the doctrine of original sin. I'm I'm an Edwardsian and a Calvinist on that. But it is striking to me that at the Last Judgment, it is not the sin of Adam for which we'll be held accountable, but our own sins, Mm. what we have done in the body. And so though we could talk talk more about that though the sin of Adam renders us uh, wicked in the sight of God outside of Christ it's our own sins for which we'll be condemned on judgment day and Christ alone is close enough to us to suffer that punishment in our place yeah absolutely absolutely
0: Okay, well, let's let's talk about this idea of substitution. You know, one of the things that yeah. both Molyneux and Boyd said in, in the discussion on Unbelievable was that they're not denying uh, the substitute part of peace, penal substitutionary atonement, but rather th- what they think is that it's not that he was the substitute for our punishment, but rather that he bore the consequences of sin, as if that somehow um, distances what they believe from our understanding of substitution. So can you help us to explain what it is that you think they mean when they talk about him bearing the consequences of sin? And then we'll talk about our answers to that.
1: Yeah, well, this is, um, uh, to to paint the picture a bit more broadly, this this pictures the uh, consequence of sin a little bit like the consequence of uh, jumping off a building. you know, If, if, you, if you jump off a building, you are going to hurt yourself. Mm. Um, if it's a tall building, you'll die. If it's a small building, you'll break a leg. But either way, it's that your folly and stupidity and wickedness, jumping off the top of this skyscraper, have brought about natural consequences which are painful and destructive. That's the key thing, natural consequences. And so people say, maybe this is what Jesus is doing. Maybe what's happening is he's stepping into our place to endure the natural consequences of sin, so sin has the natural consequences of creating violence and hatred and enmity between people, and so what happens in the cross is Jesus experiences those things—hatred and enmity and pain—turned up to an intensity that we can't imagine, mm. and so he suffers those th- natural consequences of sin in that place. Well, uh, okay, two problems with that. I mean, firstly, okay, let's firstly let's grant that it's it's true in so far as it goes. Um, sin does have what we might call natural consequences Um, and Jesus suffered those throughout his life he was just the butt end of everybody's hatred and throughout his ministry he was being persecuted and oppressed and hated by people and the cross is the climax of that that's all true but there are two problems firstly this objection forgets who is sovereign over history Uh, the natural consequences that little phrase natural consequences are not nearly natural. Mm. They're what God intends. Yeah, they're prescribed. Exactly. God, God is intentionally bringing about um, all the things that Jesus suffered from uh, You know, the first time uh, he stood up to preach and uh, and when he was in Capernaum and they tried to chase him away and uh, when they tried to throw him off a cliff and when the Pharisees tried to trap him, all those things, the, the hatred and stuff that he experienced, all those natural consequences uh, so-called, are in fact divinely ordained and intended natural consequences. So let's not cut the sovereignty of God out of the picture here. Um, it's, it's possible that, that this objection is sometimes combined with a downplaying of God's sovereignty. Um, and, I, and that is worrisome, and that, uh, that needs, means that the sovereignty of God needs to be re-emphasized. But there's a second problem. Um, the, the, with this objection, just seeing the suffering of Jesus as something natural, just, you know, he, he stood in the mess that we all created. Well, the Bible explicitly says that, this, that his experience at Calvary came from the hand of God. And, I mean, I can give you a, there are a couple of examples and one of them really stand, sticks out in my mind. Um, Jesus, uh, uh, when they go out to the Mount of Olives in Mark 14, uh, Jesus uh predicts what's going to happen um, after his death and he says to them, "Mark, this is Mark 14 27, Jesus said to them you will all fall away for it is written quote, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered mm. you can see what he's saying there, So he's the shepherd and they're the sheep he's saying after I've been struck um, you will all scatter and indeed that's what happened in the early days after his death and Judas before his death um, and they, all, they all turned away now In fact, not Judas before his death, Peter at his betrayal. You you get the picture. I will strike strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The question is, who strikes the shepherd? Jesus is quoting there from Zechariah 13. And if you turn back in your Bible to Zechariah 13, you'll discover that the one who strikes the shepherd is the Lord God himself. It's astonishing. It would have dawned on people as perhaps they remembered what he'd said and started to put together... Jesus' own teaching, and uh, with the whole of Scripture, and started to uh, see how the gospel in the Gospels Jesus fulfills the pattern set by um, uh, the Old Testament Scriptures. They would start to see that Jesus was talking about being struck by the Father, by the Living God Himself. That's one example of how we see in the the death of Jesus itself, specifically Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, he says, "God, His Father." is the one striking him. It's a terrifying thought, but it's what the Bible presents us with. And so it, in, to come back to what you were saying earlier, Chris, it, it just doesn't make sense to to say that Jesus merely suffered the natural consequences of our sin. He suffered what God intended. He suffered um, uh, willed punishment for sin.
0: Okay, and I absolutely agree, but let me press you a little bit further. Uh, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody like (laughs) Molyneux or Boyd. Um, And and they might want to say that they largely could agree with what you just said, except that they would say that this is God's prescribed wrath against sin but not necessarily sinners. And, and what they would say is that the, God definitely punishes sin, but he doesn't necessarily punish sinners. And so the question I have for you is, number one, does the Bible present it in this way, that God hates sin but not the sinner? And, and and B, do we have passages which explicitly talk about the punishment that awaits uh, unbelievers for their sin? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and we all recognize the um, the catchphrase, don't we? Um, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Um and th- there's a sense in which that's true, of course, there's a sense in which that's true, in that um, God, God regards sinful actions as wicked and, and he hates them. And yet, um, we're sinners and God loves us. And we know that there's also a sense, a different sense perhaps, in which God loves the world and there's a different sense in which God loves those who um, he has chosen but who haven't yet repented. He loves them with an electing love, you might say. Uh, incidentally Don Carson's little book The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God is quite helpful I think really helpful it's only a little volume 100 pages or so and it it just um, unpacks the different ways that the Bible talks about the love of God Um, but is it okay just to say this kind of blanket statement um, God hates the sin but loves the sinner and um, it's just not um, I always want to challenge people to read through the first 50 Psalms um, next time you attempt to think <laughs> this, and you find, you know, again and again and again, it uh, the, the psalmist. This is remember this is the hymn book of the of the people of God. The the psalmist um, uh, says that the Lord will break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like the, a potter's vessel. That's the unrepentant kings of the world. Um, Psalm two, Psalm three. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. That's Psalm three. Sorry, the previous one, Psalm two. Um, and again and again, page after page. Um, it's not that um, sins just float around and God is cross with them. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's,
1: and again, we, we we shudder to think of it because once we actually start taking this to heart, it's frightening.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but God is uh, furious with sinners, and it's that fate that we're delivered from in Christ. Um, it's him personally with whom god was angry as he stood in our place and it's him personally he personally who stood in our place so um again so what's happening here let's take a step back for a moment um we're we're finding that there are ways of articulating the work of christ which on the surface seem more palatable you know, mm. um, ways of understanding it which, which blunt some of the harshest and most terrible and terrifying things that people could say or forms of expression and again and again we're finding that they just don't fly um, this uh, the work of Christ um, accomplished something so indescribably wonderful because it delivered us from a fate so indescribably terrible yeah, um, and there's just no escaping this and so while I, I sympathise with the desire to, to not think such frightening and frightful thoughts um, uh, reading the scriptures just drives me and as it's driven many many people before me and today and, and will do in the future I trust to um, these stark hard-edged conclusions about the work of Christ
0: Yeah, I mean, Jesus Himself said that He who is forgiven much, uh, you know, forgives much and loves much. You know, the the, the more we truly understand the terrible fate that the terrible punishment we deserve, as you say, it's all the more cause for praise. I I will answer my own question though about are there passages which specifically Mm, um, uh, address or or use the word punishment when describing what awaits the wicked? I mean, the the, the debate over the nature of hell aside, uh, we can. I think you and I would agree with passages like the eternal punishment of Matthew twenty-five forty-six. However, we understand. That uh, you yeah, know, yeah. Paul says in Second Thessalonians one nine that uh, they will be punished with destruction, everlasting destruction from the face of the Lord, and he uses the word punish there. Uh, we've got Jude yeah, yeah. who says that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of punishment by uh, eternal fire. Again, the word punishment there, not and saying that Sodom and Gomorrah were punished by eternal fire, or at the very least, depending on how you understand the passage, that their punishment is an example of the punishment of eternal right, exactly. fire. So, I mean, yeah. we've got myriad, and these are just a handful of the texts that yeah. can be brought to bear here that specifically call the fate that awaits the, the wicked not yeah. just natural consequences, but punishment, act of punishment yes. for what for yeah. what they deserve. And
1: I, I think, I mean, at this point, I, I don't know whether we're going off topic here, but um, allow me to, if, if you were, to bring in something that... Um, that Greg Boyd um, mentioned American theologian um, who was one of the uh, he had contributed a recording, interview, recorded interview to the premier radio debate and he, he suggested that this picture of an angry God is really at odds with the Bible's um, uh, picture of God as a God of love mm. um, and I want to address that because what I don't want your listeners or anybody else to run away with is the idea that God is just kind of in the business of blowing his top indiscriminately and <laughs> um, God, God is God is a God of love, and the the way that we know this is that he's given his Son to suffer the punishment for our sins, right. and this is explicitly what the Bible says. So it's this paradoxical picture where, as uh, 1 John 4 puts it, this is love, not that we've loved God, that's not what love is, you know, we, we love God in a flimsy, uh, ephemeral kind of way, mm. but this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, how do we know that, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Yeah. In some Bible translations, the NIV, I think, have they explain what propitiation means in a footnote. The one who would turn aside God's wrath. So God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that eternal, unchanging, and yet infinitely alive community of love, loves us so much that he gave himself for our sins, to turn aside his own fierce wrath against our wickedness, and that's how we know what love is. So, however much we turn up the volume, this is going back a few um, minutes, isn't it, to the the conversation about the pastoral implications of this. Um, As we've turned up the volume in the last few minutes on the character of God's holy and righteous wrath and the fearsomeness of his um, hatred of sin and sinners, as we turn up that, let that also turn up the volume on the incredible intensity of his love for us. Because it's that that he delivered us from. He didn't just get us out of a shallow pit somewhere where we were getting our feet muddy. He got us out of the depths of hell. And that's how much he loves us.
0: Yeah. You know, I really like the way you you put it, and I'm struggling to recall exactly the way you did, so maybe you'll remember, <laughs> uh, but, but you, you, you pointed out that Boyd had pit against one another God's love and yeah. wrath as if it were a choice That's between right. God being loving or wrathful, and you pointed out yeah. that from this passage we can see that it's, I think you said something like love because of or love therefore wrath, one or, one or the other. Can you yeah. remind me what it was that you had said? That's right. It's, um uh,
1: I can't remember exactly what I said on the premiere show, but you've captured the sense of it. it, it really, the, the sense of it is, is here in, in 1 John 4.10. Um, uh, his, his love for us is expressed in the fact that he delivered us from his wrath. Yeah. Um, and so as we see the intensity of his hatred of sin, we've got to think that that's the kind of attitude that Jesus found when he came down to earth. When he, when, when he came into the world, he found that kind of hatred of, of man and hatred of woman and hatred of him and hatred of God. And, and, and God himself hates that, hates that in people and is aroused to a kind of holy anger at what these people, what we are doing with the beautiful world that he's created. And yeah. that intensity of his wrath is what he saved us from. And therefore, how much must he love us to do that? It's not that he... You know, if, if, I, if I nip down to a corner shop to buy a, a newspaper and a loaf of bread, well, I might do that for somebody I hardly know. But I'm not going to give myself up to death and hell and infinite indescribable pain unless I love them.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's what the living God did for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But but let me push you back, uh, pu- mm. push back a little bit, uh, again, trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who denies, you <laughs> know, substitution. And uh, because uh, I want to talk about this this passage that you're quoting from 1 John. Mm, um, yeah. Some of the feedback that uh, Justin Brierly received to that episode, I don't think you've had a chance to hear it yet, but it was played at the end of the most recent episode. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Some of the feedback was regarding this word that's translated propitiation in that passage. And, and, and what these critics of PSA said is that when they looked into the meaning of this word it, it means something like atonement or reconciliation right. in fact one of them used the old this the, i actually really don't like this i think it's kind of <laughs> i think it's overly simplistic but they'll they'll put dashes between letters in the word atonement to make yeah, it at yeah. one minute, at you one know at one minute. um but you know they'll say that that's kind of the um the, the limit to its meaning, that it doesn't mean diverting or, or, or satisfying the wrath of God. Where do we... Is, is that, in fact, what the word means, uh, turning aside God's wrath? And how, how do we know that that's what the word means?
1: Yeah, um, well, it is. And yet, let's take a step back and see where this debate has come from. In the early, mid-20th uh, century, when the revised standard version was of the Bible was produced, um, they replaced um, the word propitiation with expiation in their translation of the Greek term hilasterion and hilasmus. Um Okay, there's some long words for you. Um, <laughs> Hilasmos is the Greek word or hilasterion. And the question is, does that refer to something that happens to a person, that the person is cleansed, that's expiation, or does it refer to something that happens, so to speak, in relation to God, propitiation? Is it that we are cleansed of our sins expiation, or is it that God's wrath is turned turned aside? That's propitiation. Mm. And influenced as they were by the work of C.H. Dodd, the um, mid-20th century New Testament scholar wrote a commentary on Romans and a bunch of other stuff, um, the RSV translators opted for expiation and made it sound like Jesus accomplished our cleansing. He cleansed us from sin, which is gloriously true, but it's not what the word means. Mm. Um, and the, uh, since then, other scholars have done Uh, some work basically undoing the pickle that um, Professor Dodd made of that in the middle of the 20th century. One that springs to mind is um, David Peterson and some other contributors to uh, Where Roth and Mercy Meet, which is a collection of essays from my old theological college, um, Oak Hill Theological College here in North London. Um, uh, They did some work on the character of the Atonement and what um, this vocabulary means in Asterium. Um, uh, you can find the debate outlined in some detail in John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, Jim Packer's written on the subject. Um, one uh, theme that lies in the background is the uh, Old Testament language of atonement. And uh, at the risk of, of going on too long about um, foreign words, this one will amuse you. The, um, the Hebrew term kipper or kipper pronounced kipper in england we have kippers which are kind of smoked herrings K- k-i-double-p-e-r and it's k-p-r in hebrew they're the consonants um and uh, this term is translated often atonement so the question is what does it mean does it mean that the wrath of god is averted or could it mean something else could it mean reconciliation at one moment, bringing t- bringing two sides together the answer is yes it can sometimes sometimes the word Kipper means forgive. Sometimes it means cleanse. When it has to do with um, physical objects, like the tabernacle, mm. um, it's to do with cleansing. Blood is sprinkled on the tabernacle to do with, uh, to cleanse from sin. Um, sometimes it uh, means ransom, particularly when it's used in connection with the noun kofer, which means the ransom payment. Um, and again, sometimes this is explicit because a, a payment payment is mentioned or something which is given is mentioned. And so sometimes what people do is they say, well, look, the word kipper means um, cleansing or it means forgive or it means a ransom payment. It doesn't refer to the averting of God's wrath. Well, what do you do? Well, the answer is you look in detail at all the other texts where the word is used. And in some of them, not all of them, but some of them, it clearly refers to the averting of um, the wrath of God. Uh, I mean, just to give a couple of examples, um, you've got in the book of Numbers, um, in Numbers 25, um, the Israelites committed sexual immorality with the Moabite women and God's anger was manifested in a plague. His anger was turned aside, atoned for, kiper is the verb that was used, by uh, Phineas' action in uh, executing one of the men who was one of the ringleaders of this immorality. Clearly what's going on here, um, it's not that this man is being cleansed. It's it's not that this man is being forgiven. Mm. It's not that he's been reconciled with anybody. The wrath of the Lord is being visited upon the people of God, and uh, the wrath of the Lord is turned aside as this man is executed. So in that vivid uh, narrative there in Numbers 25, you've got an example of where that same Hebrew word, kiper, can mean a fourth thing, not forgive, not cleanse, not ransom payment, but to turn aside the wrath of God. And our argument in the book, in Pierced for our Transgressions, is that that's the sense which um, is found in Leviticus 16. Um, uh, again, you've got... Um, the, the reference to Nadab and Abihu, and, and readers, if they're interested, can read the argument in more detail. It's a, It goes on for a half dozen pages. I won't belabor it here. But you see the point that um, we must be quite careful in how we uh, understand the meaning of significant biblical terms and, it, I guess, you translate them with sensitivity to the context and to the, the theological context, particularly in which they occur. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that pulls together quite a lot of um, discussion, and I hope it serves to give some clarity to the Old Testament uh, New Testament background to this idea of um, propitiation as turning aside the wrath of God.
0: Yeah, and if I recall, and, and I might have to cut this out if I totally get this wrong, and if you have to correct me on this, but if I recall, there's there's actually places, maybe this very word, where um, where the work of Christ the word that is used is the same word that's used to translate the the mercy seat that was a uh, that was on the ark or something like that right, yeah, right. It, where where um, the idea was this is a place where sacrifices were made to do just that to divert the wrath of God um, yeah. maybe I'm misunderstanding but I mean am, am I right kind of along the right lines
1: yeah a related word can be used for the covering Um the, the what's sometimes translated the mercy seat, the, the place where the blood was sprinkled on the ark. And um, I, I guess there's just this wider point that um, what, what sometimes happens in in theological discussions and debates about biblical texts is that people are so keen to make their point that they'll they'll seize upon the slightest shred of evidence which seems to support them. And you get this sometimes with word studies. Mm. If if people figure out, okay, the meaning of this passage. Um, is strongly dependent on the meaning of one particular word. So what they do is they'll they'll look at the other 150 times that word appears in the (laughs) Bible, or, if necessary, in the rest of the ancient Greek or Hebrew corpus. Not that there's much Hebrew, but there's a lot of Greek. And if they can find one example, one example, where it means what they think it ought to mean here, then that's the thing they'll quote. And it gives the impression, because there's a big lengthy footnote about it that, it, that it's the product of serious scholarship. Actually, it's not. It's the product of trying to find evidence to fit your theory. And it's much better, obviously, much better to, to um, take into account the whole um, swathe of biblical data and to acknowledge that words mean different things in different contexts. And what matters is what it means here, in this context, where, you're, uh, where the discussion is taking place.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's turn to another objection. This came up in, in the recording from Greg Boyd during the Mm. show. Uh, and when I heard it, it reminded me that I had heard this, this phrase before first, I think from, I, I think I heard this phrase first from, uh, Dave Miller. Wait, is it, did I get that right? Uh, from from the producer of Hellbound, um, right. we, we interviewed him on on Rethinking Hell, and I think I remember him using this phrase, the myth of redemptive violence. And then I heard Greg Boyd say it on the air, and it made me think, Gosh, is this is this sort of a stock phrase that is being thrown around? And then sure enough, when I lo- when I looked in the table of contents in your book, I saw that this was one of the objections that you right. answer in, in the in your book. So first, sort of set the stage for us. What just what is this objection based on the so called myth of redemptive violence? Well, uh, the myth of redemptive violence is
1: is one way of talking about how um, quite a lot of uh, ancient pagan religions worked. Um, this uh, it goes back. At, this kind of analysis goes back as far at least as Rene Girard, who had some really insightful and some really crazy things to say. Um, and he, he, among other things, studied kind of religious social anthropology, um, and he describes. Um, Religion as organised violence in the service of social tranquillity, or at least some forms of religion, he describes in that kind of way, and and thus violence properly organised has the capacity in these religious systems to produce um, uh, appeasement, uh, social social tranquillity, where otherwise there will be social unrest. Hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure what he has in mind in all the details of the different religions that he discusses, but what he effectively does is say, well, this is what the, the um, well, sorry, it's not what he says. Um, that analysis is then applied to uh, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, as if to suggest that, uh, to talk about Jesus' death in this way, implies that we're putting it in the same category, as if we're sort of saying that basically the death of Jesus was an act of organised violence in the service of social tranquillity. Um, Now, uh, I think that's just a mistaken application of an irrelevant category. Mm. Of course, it's true that there are religions that work like that. Of course there are. In fact, there are non-religious situations that work like that. Um, The crowd that's baying for blood that goes home after a fight in the playground has taken place. You know, you've got two gangs of youths the you meet in the courtyard or whatever, or meet in the streets, and... Um, sometimes what happens is that a couple of lads will have a bust-up, and then everybody else goes home. What's happened there? Well, somehow violence has taken place, which brings a degree of tranquility to the rest of the community. So that's true. It happens in non-religious, or at least non-cultic contexts, and it happens in some cultic contexts as well. But nobody who articulates the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement with any degree of biblical sensitivity is saying that's what's going on here um well, let me interject that for a moment because
0: that's exactly what I was going to pick up on is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think there were three bits of feedback that Justin read to your yeah. appearance on Unbelievable, uh, two of which I already mentioned, the propitiation issue, but the third one was actually in favor of PSA and he, 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 uh, called, he took Greg Boyd to task on this myth of redemptive violence thing, pointing out that when we talk about the just punishment for sins, we're usually not talk we don't usually characterize that as redemptive violence, you know, it we don't use the word violence to describe yeah. that. So, so, I mean, is that kind of the direction you're heading here? Is is the problem with this objection that it's improperly characterizing the bearing of punishment as if it's, you know, violence that brings appeasement? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess if, if you really pushed me, um,
1: uh, you'd, you could say, well, is, is the death of Jesus redemptive? Yes. Was it violent? Yes. Okay, so it's redemptive violence. Well nobody's got any problem with that because everybody agrees that it was violent, and everybody agrees ev- everyone agrees that it was violent and everyone agrees that it was redemptive mm. So this criticism is not normally raised in that way it's raised as a criticism put like that it's so bland that it's simply an assertion of what happened it was violent and it was redemptive mm. um, if, if the um, criticism has any force as a criticism, it's saying that penal substitutionary atonement uniquely Sets out the death of Christ in this kind of way, um, and I don't think that's don't think that's true. Um, of course, violence was involved, yeah, but that doesn't mean that it was involved in the same way and for the same reasons as those um, uh, pagan and non-religious religious systems. That's just um, that's just not what not what anybody is saying is going on here.
0: So is it okay? So I'm trying to wrap my head around this objection and the answer to it, hmm. and. It sounds to me like, the, as you say, it, it's if we just blandly characterize it as redemptive violence, that's really not yeah. an objection. The objection is if PSA is true. I mean, the reason why PSA isn't true is because it's it, it seems it's more pagan in origin, in the sense that pagan pagan religions, and as you say, even outside of religious context, we have this mm. you know uh, societies have this concept of violence that brings about peace yeah. or whatever. Um, so is the is the answer to that then that we see? I mean, we've already talked a lot about it. That we already see in the in the uh, pages of the scripture itself and in the Old Testament this concept that God is wrathful towards sinners and that sacrifices do divert the wrath of God away from sin. You know that that somebody can stand in as the substitute uh, for somebody's punishment. Is that is that the answer to the objection? Um, in in part, yeah, in
1: part it is. Um, I have to say though, to be honest, I think that this objection only really has any force because of the rhetoric um, okay because um, uh, in other words it associates um, the death of Christ with something that sounds bad I mean who <laughs> wants to believe in a view of Jesus death that that can be labelled the myth of redemptive violence sure. you know, it's, it's a bit like believing in limited atonement I mean who wants to limit the atonement <laughs> not me But which is why it's helpful to describe that doctrine as uh, effectual atonement or particular redemption but here I think I you want to say um, was Jesus deliberately and knowingly and willingly going to a violent death well he was wasn't he so in that sense violence is redemptive and um, and nobody has any problem with it, and penal substitutionary atonement is not unique in that. If you're saying any any more than that, if you're trying to lump this doctrine of the atonement in with pagan religious systems, then it's just clearly nothing like them, and the objection isn't really one that can be taken seriously.
0: Yeah. I, I recognize, incidentally, that I am s- kind of stumbling over this one. I, it's just difficult for me to get my head around. I mean, well, it, if it's it,
1: difficult it, to get your head around, it's probably not your fault, to be honest. I, um, you know, so, some, sometimes you read things and you think, this is complicated and it's because I'm thick. Sometimes you read things and you think, this
0: is just confused. Yeah. And I think there is an element of that here.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, it, it sort of reminds me this this... Issue with uh, violence bringing about peace—it sort of reminds me of, you know, in uh, in Iron Man the movie, um, Stark. I think at one point he's he's uh, displaying this new weapon, this new weapon system to uh, the army, and I think he says something about peace by means of the biggest stick or whatever. You know, <laughs> we, we 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 have this joke about peace being brought about by um, having such a powerful army that nobody can stand against you. It's sort yeah, of like yeah, the, yeah. the Pax Romana, right? I mean, the Ro- the the Roman peace was brought about by Rome conquering all these other nations, but but to say that this concept is in any way, shape, or form similar to the doctrine of penal substitution, it just yes, it's crazy. baffles me. It's crazy. As it, yeah, it, it does,
1: and especially once you see um, the, the way that Christ um, gave himself up, the way that the Son gave himself up to the wrath of the Father, was precisely by allowing himself to become a victim. Mm. You know? If, if you just had a raw... Christus Victor view with no sense of substitutionary oh. suffering then you'd have the idea of the conqueror on the great white horse coming in and blitzing everybody that might lay you open to the criticism of um, uh, a myth of redemptive violence because Jesus is the one going about being violent but that's not what you've got here here you've got the victim yeah. Jesus is the victim and he gave himself willingly as, as he who was one and is one with the Father as a Trinitarian action God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all willing and carrying out in different respects the same action. It's a self giving sacrifice, not um, slaying innocent people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so here's another objection. Uh, this is something I've heard before and, um, you know, have my own thoughts about, but you address it also in your book. Um, s- some have argued that if penal substitution is true, then God isn't really forgiving sin. What he's doing is he's just you know, putting the punishment onto somebody else, in, in this case himself. But, but it's, sin isn't really forgiven, it's just paid for by somebody else. So how can we genuinely speak about the forgiveness of our sins uh, in a penal substitution model?
1: Yeah, well, um, you can. Because we need to pull together two different things which are in danger of getting... Well, sorry, disentangle two different things which are in danger of getting confused. Firstly, we've got the issue of justice. Secondly, we've got the issue of forgiveness. Justice says, and truthfulness actually, says that God, the righteous judge of all the earth, must do right. The devil must not be able to stand up to God on the last day and say, You have not done justice here. Uh, no one has suffered no one has been punished punishment has just been overlooked and you're no different from those corrupt judges who roll up to court half drunk and acquit the guilty and let let everybody go home the devil must not be able to do that so somebody must suffer somebody must be punished that's the right thing to do
0: Mm.
1: at the same time in relation to us either we suffer for our sins or we don't and are forgiven So perhaps you could say it like this. Um, In relation to us and God, we experience forgiveness. Our sins are wiped away and cleansed because they're taken from another and the punishment is suffered by another. In relation to God, justice is done, justice is served because the punishment is paid. And we don't want to set those two things against each other. We want God to be able to say, your sins are forgiven and justice is done. Mm. And I think that's that's how I try and Um, draw out those two threads so that uh, it kind of makes sense in the background to all this is the doctrine of the Trinity of course that there is uh, oneness and yet distinction in the Godhead so that it's possible for God um, God the Father and God the Son to act upon each other Um, they are uh, different persons which means that though they're not independent in being nonetheless they are distinct subjects and one Mm. can be the subject and the other the object of the same action So God can give, God the Father can give to the Son, God the Son can glorify the Father, um, both can send the Spirit and so on. And yet at the same time, they're one and so they can both willingly and 100%, so to speak, cooperate in the same action. Um, So that means that um, without having the unwilling child being butchered, you can have the willing son giving himself to satisfy the... uh, Penal claims of God the Father in relation to our sin.
0: Yeah, you know, I, we always uh, run into a, a little bit of danger when we when we use analogies. But I thought yeah. I might offer yeah. one that, that a, a some a f- sort of friend of mine, I guess, a, 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 a show, a, the host of a show that I like. His name is Matt Slick, and he's a show of a radio show out here in the states, and he's the president of uh, uh, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry. Anyway, right. he's offered a, a kind of you know a crude analogy where if you were to come into my home and break my lamp. Um, I could forgive you of that, and replace my lamp at my own cost. Yeah. The, the, the fact that I've replaced my lamp at my own cost doesn't mean that I haven't truly forgiven you of it. In fact, it's hmm. because I've replaced it at my own cost that I'm forgiving you. Um, yes, is, is, is there? Do you think that there's some truth to this analogy in, in, with regards to this objection?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. It's, it's, it's good. And no analogy would go the whole nine yards and explain everything. Right. Um, uh, that analogy best illustrates, I'm, I'm sure Matt Slick, I don't know him personally, but I'm sure he, he would say the same thing. That um, best illustrates um, how a ransom payment works. Um, uh, there you've got no problem, so to speak, with God the Father um, and God the Son and God the Spirit together paying the ransom that we owe him the living God um, it it's going to run into trouble as soon as you start thinking about um, punishment for sin because that's something by its very nature requires two parties mm. um, the, the judge and the, the guilty party so to speak um, but yeah as far as the, the illustration goes I like it um, just on the subject of illustrations this is an intriguing one because many of us um, myself included certainly um, rely on illustrations to a certain extent in our, the way we think about things and uh, preachers rely on illustrations in the way that we uh, teach things and it's just worth um, keeping in mind the limitations of yeah. these uh, this isn't to suggest any any particular weakness in the illustration you mentioned from the Matt Slick came up with at all but um, one of the things that we realised during the writing of *Pierced for our transgressions is we kept coming across criticisms of penal substitutionary atonement that weren't fair but which were pretty good at criticisms <laughs> of some illustrations of the cross. Sure. Um, and so we included an appendix. <coughs> we included an appendix to the book to to try and help preachers uh, to think through this. Uh, we didn't want to make preachers' jobs more difficult. We wanted to make them easier and to help them see. Because all three of us um, uh, are uh, ministers, and or two of us are ministers full time. M- Mike is the principal of the college, but um, uh, Andrew and I certainly preach. Almost every week, and we, we know what it's like to be, you know, clutching around trying to find something to to make something which we're about to make confusing, to make it to make it come alive and to make it clearer. Yeah. And we wanted to try and help uh, people in our kind of position to see that sometimes that can lead you into problems down the line. That you come up with an illustration which conveys fifty percent really well and fifty percent really badly, right. um, and people go away from the sermon and they'll res- remember your illustration. <laughs> and it, it kind of takes on a life of its own um, outside of the context of the sermon. So um, it's, ju- it's just an issue that's worth thinking through. It's particularly an issue for preachers, but really for anybody who wants to uh, get beyond, well, just just anybody who wants to think uh, theologically, if, if you're reading the kind of books we're talking about here, um, then you need to think past the illustrations which are sometimes used to outline these doctrines because those illustrations can sometimes lead us astray. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, I've got just a few more objections <coughs> for you, and then we'll, we'll begin to wrap up. Um, you mm. know, one of, the address- one of the things I had never considered, but which you address in your book, is the objection that if God w- desires a relationship with us, but... Mm. But but requires that uh, but but if justice requires that the sin be punished in order for that relationship to be repaired, uh, th- then some are going to argue that similar to the Euthyphro dilemma. This, this doctrine of penal substitution uh, subjects God to a law of justice that's external to himself, um, because they would argue that if he isn't subject to such an external law, then he could just choose to forgive people without punishing, uh, without giving people the punishment that, that is due them. So h- how do you answer in a, this kind of objection?
1: Yeah, I think uh, that's a good uh, point to make, because what we want to say is that God um, is, so to speak, bound by... Uh, his law, quote-unquote, I'm not now using the term in quite the Old Testament sense, but He's bound by the law which says that sin is sin. Does that entail saying then that God is somehow constrained to act by something which is outside of Himself? And the answer is no, because, ask yourself this question, where does the law come from?
0: God.
1: Whose law is it? <laughs> um, uh, the, the, law, the law is the law of God, and it's God's own holy and righteous character that the law reflects. So when we say, God's law says something, that's a kind of shorthand, it's, it's a shorthand for saying God himself from the very depths of his being feels and believes something and therefore he says it and therefore his word, his law, says it. Yeah. Um, so we, we might say God is constrained by the righteousness and holiness of his own character to act in certain ways. Um, and this, again, I mentioned it before, but uh, he's, um, this was brought out by um, Athanasius. who says God is constrained by his own truthfulness. Yeah. Truthfulness is not a standard that somebody else holds God to. Truthfulness is a standard that God holds himself to because, it, indeed, it flows from him. Uh, and, and so um, what he does then, everything that he does is in accordance with his own character. And his own character is both righteous and truly true, and loving and holy and merciful, um, and everything he does uh, brings together all those different ways of describing uh, his character. And if, if if you were if you were an open theist, say, um, or if if you uh, had some other view of God which uh, in in some way separates God's attributes off from one another, or separates God off from his attributes. Or denies divine simplicity, or something like that, or worse still, brings God towards the level of a creature, suggesting that God is embodied or whatever, something of that kind. Then you're going to run into exactly this trouble. Actually, um, you're going to start thinking of God as being constrained by things outside Himself, and that's where open theism ends up. Uh, uh, this is perhaps something else we <laughs> have to talk about. Um, we, but uh, where uh, God basically isn't Almighty. Um, God can't do everything he wants. uh, The world is a game of chess, and he's a pretty good chess player, but there's some things he can't do, even though he wants to do them. Now, we're not saying that. We're saying that everything that God does, he wills and wants to do, and that includes the things that his word says. So when his word says that uh, that he uh, rises up in holy and righteous fury at the sins of the wicked people like us then that's because um, he rises up in that way and he's not bound by something outside himself to act he's bound only by his own character
0: yeah Okay, well, we've spent a lot of time talking about Jesus' death. Uh, and in fact, this is one of the objections that is sometimes leveled against PSA. Uh, Greg Boyd, I think, and, and Molyneux both mentioned it in the discussion on Unbelievable, and, and you address this in your book. Um, does the doctrine of penal substitution render Jesus' life basically superfluous, and does it render his resurrection more or less meaningless?
1: Well, I mean... No, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I mean, one, one reason to... Uh, you, you can see how this comes about, can't you? This um, criticism, it flows from uh, what people perceive as an exclusive focus on the death of Christ. Mm-hmm. And again, let's hold our hands up and, and say that sometimes this is, this is how things happen. Um, sometimes we're guilty of talking in this way, but that's not because of the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That's because we have got a... Um, either we're just not talking about Jesus' life, we're talking about Jesus' death at a particular point, or it's possible to only focus on certain aspects of the Biblical um, uh, uh, Bible's teaching. Right. Um, so, okay, if we say that um, it was the, the death of Christ has his significance, we're not underplaying his life. Uh, we still want to affirm everything about the life of Jesus that everybody who disagrees with us would want to affirm. We still want to say that in his life, in his ministry, he's teaching. He's he's giving us these uh, an example to follow. He is um, he's reliving the life of Israel, the people of God, with his temptations in the wilderness and so on. Uh, he's Um, he's the great prophet who is to come into the world Um, this and countless countless other things we'd want to say and in his resurrection his resurrection is so to speak the flip side of his death on the cross his death on the cross is the putting to death of the old world and his resurrection is the beginning of the new world Um, in him uh, the world is being renewed and we're united with the risen Christ and so we're resurrected risen with him and exalted and seated at the right hand of God the Father in him so none of that is compromised in any way by saying that he's our penal, um, he's our penal substitute. Yeah, in fact, in fact, qu- sorry, go on. You're going to say.
0: Well, I might, have, I might be about to say what you were just about to say, which is that, in fact, uh, you know, the author of Hebrews appears to make it clear that uh, it was in fact his having risen from the dead and therefore being able to perpetually uh, be the mediator, be you know, make intercession on our behalf. It's because he rose from the dead that we're able to be uh, forgiven and, and preserved in our faith to begin with.
1: Yeah, that's true, and that's that's connecting the resurrection of Christ to his uh, priesthood and his heavenly session. Um, and this, again, um, highlights something which has been implicit in much of what we're saying, that um, theology is a... I like to think of Christian theology as a kind of jigsaw puzzle, mm. um, uh, where uh, lots of uh, things in the puzzle, they all belong there, and they all relate to each other in some way. So what you say about one aspect of... Uh, the work of Christ, let's say, his resurrection is connected to something else. His heavenly session, his, his Melchizedekian priesthood and so on. Um, but then just come back a step or two to, to what um, you were hinting at before. Because some people would want to say, yeah, okay, um, when uh, advocates of penal substitutionary atonement um, uh, talk about Jesus' life, that's a kind of lip service, because though they may believe that Jesus' life was significant, it has no significant bearing on his serving as a penal substitute. Can you see what I'm saying? That w- they're, they're suggesting that Jesus' life is irrelevant for his suffering in our place on the cross. And again there, I'm afraid mm. to say that's a misunderstanding. Yeah. Just think of um, uh, 1 Peter. Um, he's an unblemished lamb. Now, why is that important? Well, it's, it's important because he's the Passover um Sacrifice. The the Passover sacrifice had to be an unblemished lamb. So that's connected with all the stuff about um, the significance of the Passover lamb as the penal substitute for the people of Israel. So the the lamb without blemish or defect is the penal substitutionary Passover lamb. But in what sense was he without uh, blemish or defect? It was that his entire life was without blemish or defect. So when you see the, the perfection and the wisdom and the godliness... Of the sinlessness of Jesus every action on earth what you're seeing among other things is his qualification to die as our substitute Passover sacrifice in that way you've got this intrinsic and deep rooted connection between the death of Jesus as our penal substitute and the whole of his earthly life
0: yeah yeah, and it's important to recognize too uh, that it wasn't just that he didn't sin during its li- his life, it's also that he perfectly met the, uh, the the positive demands of the law you know, I mean the, the yeah. We, yeah, right. we, we, uh, we distinguish between uh, sins of omission and sins of commission and, and his life was bo- both you know, didn't violate any commands of things that you're not supposed to do, but he also fulfilled every requirement of the law, including uh, being completely devoted to and loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength in a way that nobody else could. So, as you say, his his life is you know very intimately tied together with his death. Um, now, I have yeah. I have one more objection that we, that I want to talk about, and and my listeners, those who've heard us talk before, would know how I would how I would answer this <laughs> objection. Um, but but it's it's worth bringing up because it came up during the unbelievable discussion, and, and I don't think you had a chance to respond in that episode. Uh, but you do address yeah. the objection in your book, and, and the objection is this: if what awaits sinners is an eternity of conscious punishment. But Jesus' uh, suffering spanned, you know, a few hours and culminated in his death. Um, how is it that we could even begin to say that he stood in as our substitute if he suffered what appears to be such different punishment from what uh, from what most Christians believe awaits those for whom he didn't die?
1: Yeah, right. So are we saying um, Christ didn't suffer eternally, and therefore? Um, it can't have been a substitute for an eternity in hell. Yeah, that's the basic objection, yeah. right. Okay, um, well, <laughs> so, since it's you, Chris, let me come back, just firstly, um, uh, uh, for those who would be tempted... Tempted is the wrong word. Those, okay. those, are, those, who, those who feel... <laughs> those who are, are tempted to follow you, Chris. Those who feel um, uh, inclined by the biblical data to prefer an annihilationist doctrine of hell, which I don't hold, well, uh unless you th- on on your reasoning Chris uh, I don't think that most annihilationists would think that we suffer for how many hours three hours or six hours or two and a half days or whatever in in hell if we're not saved so if it's just a matter of timing uh, that is inclining somebody towards annihilationism annihilationism probably won't help you but le- let me try and address the question then sure. in a way that helps both of us so how does Jesus suffering for the three hours of darkness on the cross, or um, the three days in the tomb. How, how does that? How can that be equivalent to um, an eternity in hell? And this is an important question um, because unless it's in some way equivalent, then how can he be our substitute? Um, at this point, it's just um, helpful to uh, clarify one of the things that. Uh, is is significant for the severity of a punishment is its duration. But that's not the only thing. Other things that matter include the intensity and the character of the person being punished and their relationship with the person being punished, doing the punishing and so on. So, just to take a glib example, um, to suffer... Um, uh, two years hard labour is not the same as to suffer two years in an open prison. They you know a the, the different intensity. Um, and as Christian theologians have tried to put this stuff together in in thinking about the death of Christ, what they realised, of course, is that um, Jesus himself, by his character as the incarnate Son of God, is of infinite personal dignity. So for him to suffer at all, in any way, is, so to speak, an infinitely unthinkable thing Mm. um Francis Turretin says that Christ alone ought to be estimated at a higher value than all men together and that the dignity of an infinite person swallows up all the infinities of punishment due to us
0: yeah
1: to be honest I find it hard to understand how exactly that's so except to say that it kind of makes intuitive sense to me um uh, uh just let me give you an, uh, an illustration um, the uh, over here in the UK we still have a monarch we still have the queen her uh, Majesty queen elizabeth ii um, uh, if she were walking down the street in London and if um, there was some stray cyclist careering down a hill looking like grief unless somebody gets in the way um, the uh, the cyclist is going to plough into her Majesty, perish the thought. I think there will be people queuing up to throw themselves in the way, in the path of the cyclist. Mm. Broken arms and broken legs and black eyes and all. And the reason is not because they know Her Majesty particularly, it's that they we intrinsically sorry, instinctively somehow feel that for someone of such such dignity and significance to suffer a broken arm would be awful. We we would rather uh, we had the broken arm and the broken leg, leg and the black eye, because that wouldn't be so bad. And I think something of the same intuitive uh, view of uh, suffering is at work in the death of Christ. For Christ to suffer anything at all is so outrageous, so dreadful, that the the severity and seriousness of the punishment rises in proportion to the dignity of the person. And Her Majesty will not mind my saying that Christ is more dignified and glorious even than her. So, in that way, we can understand how God can count Jesus three hours on the cross or his uh, three days in the tomb as infinitely sufficient to propitiate the sins of the whole world. I don't pretend to understand all of that, but um, it makes sense uh, to me in so far as I can uh, put the pieces together.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, th- that covers, you know, I think just about every objection that came up during Unbelievable. Uh, I think it, it, it gives uh, the listeners a taste of many of the <laughs> objections that you address in your book. Um, so I would definitely encourage our listeners to check those things out. I, I want to begin to wrap up now, if that's okay. And I want to start mm, yeah. that by asking you. To what extent do you see the doctrine of penal substitution as an essential of the Christian faith? To, to what extent is it proper to divide from uh, from professing Christians who would deny, uh, knowing all the details involved, knowing knowing the justification for PSA, would nevertheless mm. deny it? Mm. To what extent would it be proper to divide from them? How would you address this kind of a question?
1: Well, I, th- I think it's, uh, it's funny. Whenever we have a conversation, we always have um, – <laughs> this question comes up and it's always the last one. And um, – I think with any any issue of disagreement, the question is um, uh, not just what's the issue, but why is the person you think if you think they're wrong why 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 is the person wrong? Mm. Um, are they wrong because they are kind of bullheadedly and flagrantly disregarding what they can plainly see as the teaching of holy scripture? And they're doing so because they have cultural pressure or because of personal distaste or whatever else. Are they wrong just because, well, they've, they've studied the Bible and they, they have come to a conscientious conclusion which differs from yours? Um, those are different positions. And like I said in our conversation about um, uh, eternal conscious punishment, um, I think it's quite conceivable that somebody might reject an eternal doctrine of hell because of personal distaste. Mm. And that's not the same as somebody who rejects that view because they just f- don't find it in the Bible um, I would say I think that penal substitutionary atonement is a good deal more significant than that Yeah. partly because it's more intrinsically connected to so many other things the justice of God the holiness of God the truthfulness of God the sovereignty of God the love of God all these things are so closely interwoven with uh, the doctrine of penal substitution that, that I find it uh, it's, it feels more likely to me that somebody who is rejecting this doctrine is doing so in spite of the Bible, not because of it. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't want to say that that's true of everybody. Um, it's, it's quite wrong to impute to somebody else what you think are the consequences of their beliefs or where you think their beliefs have come from. And so always in this, um, charity, slow to act, slow to speak, slow to think, slow to pass judgment is is the best way forward, but I do think that this uh, perspective on the atoning work of Christ cannot be abandoned without doing serious damage to the rest of the stuff that we believe about God, and therefore it can't be abandoned, um, it shouldn't be abandoned, and it it can't be abandoned uh, whilst preserving intact much else. There will be people out there uh, listening to this show who um, just think, well, I've never heard most of this stuff before. In that case, don't feel that I'm taking a tilt at you guys at all. But do take this as a prompt to go deeper into the Word of God. You're already listening to this radio show. Presumably that's that's one of the things that you're about. So um, why not uh, dig a little deeper? And if you find yourself thinking, I don't really understand all of these things, pick up John Stott's Cross of Christ, Pick up something lighter like um, Mark Minnell, cross-examined. Um, I can um, get uh, links to these um, on um, for Chris and he can put them on the website if he's willing to do so. They'll be on my website. I'll put them up there before this thing. Uh, the broadcast goes out. Um, if you if you find yourself challenged particularly on penal substitutionary atonement, then um, you may find pierced for transgressions useful. It's certainly not the only thing out there on the subject, though. And I encourage you to think and work through and pray through more, uh, deeply and in more detail, some of this stuff. It's always a real joy. Speaking as a pastor, a, a, a woman at Emmanuel did just a few a months ago. She came to me um, after a service or after a Bible study, I think, and she said, I, I want to go a little bit deeper <laughs> into the Word of God. Or that, weren't, that wasn't quite the word she used, but the sense was, I want to just explore a bit more um She's a Sunday school teacher. She's feeling that responsibility and thinks, I want to be the best Sunday school teacher, the most faithful disciple I can. And that, I think, is so encouraging for her. And in five years' time, it will pay huge dividends for her. Um, And I encourage your listeners to do the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I do as well. Uh, and I do encourage them to check you out online and, to, and to, to purchase your book. You say that it's not the only thing out there, and certainly it's not, no, but it no, is very good. Uh, where, where can they go to find you online and tr- the church you pastor at, and, and where can they go online to purchase the book?
1: Well, the book, that's easy. Um, Amazon, uh, either Amazon US, Amazon UK. Um, you can get a good price often from uh, InterVarsity Press, uh, the publishers. Um, that's IVP Books in the UK. IVPbooks.co.uk. But just check it out on Amazon, that's the easiest way to do it. It's now available um, in electronic format on Kindle and all the other usual things. Um, If you want to check out the church where I minister, it's Emmanuel Evangelical Church and the website is uh, northlondonchurch.org. If you're ever around in North London, then please do drop in. It's always a great delight to us. We're a small church, 50, 60 people. It's a great privilege to us when occasionally people who are in London on business or on holiday, they'll call us up beforehand and then they'll come and visit or they'll just drop in. And we love to see visitors. Um, we have a few visitors most weeks. Um, so come and check us out. Uh, you can find us online. Um, we occasionally run conferences and the like and invite speakers um, uh, for that. We've got a conference this coming this summer on the subject of death which I encourage you to check out, and we can, we'll put the recordings of those online as well. So there's a good deal of stuff there, not as much as on, on uh, your website, Chris, um, but there's, we, we try and keep the site up to date with uh, new material, resources for people to listen to. And there's all my sermons there. And sermons of other preachers who come and visit us too.
0: Well, I guarantee you, if I ever if I ever find myself in London, I'll make sure to <laughs> to make a stop by your you church. You better do, Chris.
1: You better do. It's been
0: it's as usual. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for joining me today, Steve.
1: Yeah, pleasure. Thank you very much, Chris. God bless you.
0: Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, important topic, and I think it was a great and articulate defense of penal substitution. Join us uh, for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast, whatever that might be. Until then.